0: Good morning. This morning's scripture reading is taken from Ecclesiastes chapter 1 verses 1 and uh, chapter 7 verses 1 through 13. And it can be found in the Pew Bible on page 662. A good name is better than precious ointment, and the day of death than the day of birth. It is better to go to the house of mourning than to go to the house of feasting, for this is the end of all mankind and the living will lay it to heart. Sorrow is better than laughter, for by the sadness of face the heart is made glad. The heart of the wise is in the house of mourning, but the heart of fools is in the house of myrrh. It is better for man to hear the rebuke of the wise than to hear the song of fools. For as the crackling of thorns under a pot, so is the laughter of the fools. This is also vanity. Surely
1: oppression drives the wise into madness, and a bribe corrupts the heart. Better is the end of a thing than its beginning, and the patient in spirit is better than the proud in spirit. Be not quick in your spirit to become angry, for anger lodges in the bosom of fools. Say not, why were the former days better than these? For it is not from wisdom that you ask this. Wisdom is good with an inheritance, an advantage to those who see the sun. For the protection of wisdom is like the protection of money, and the advantage of knowledge is that wisdom preserves the life of him who has it. Consider the work of God. Who can make straight what he has made crooked? This is the word of God. As you find your way to the book of Ecclesiastes, chapter 7, there's one more birth I want to celebrate this morning. Christopher is now two months old. Or Adam and Nikki in the back. We're really excited. Congratulations to you guys. Um, So Ecclesiastes chapter 7. To be perfectly honest, I would not have chosen this text this morning. After the week that we've had of three funerals. Each one marked by a strange mixture of grief and hope and joy. Saying goodbye to Mary Santella, as she completed 87 years of her life. Uh, Several of those last few years, she was eager to go and be with the Lord at times. Saying goodbye to Jean Allen, Judy's mother, Kyle's grandmother, who lived a full and a fun life. uh, From what I heard, I never had the chance to meet her, but yet was taken very quickly and unexpectedly by stroke. And saying goodbye to Chris Cobb, whose life was cut far too short, far too closely to his brother David's. There are no words to understand or explain what the Cobb family's gone through. Uh, all we can do is follow Jerry and Suki's example and cling to Jesus. Death is an enemy. It's an enemy. It's not the way that things are supposed to be. We know this in our hearts and how deeply we grieve over those that we've lost to death and how greatly we fear losing people or fear our own deaths. There is such a great aversion to death in our world and in our culture that we even have a hard time saying the word when we talk about it, we use a whole bunch of euphemisms. You know, we pass away. We kick the bucket. In Nebraska, you buy the farm. Uh, you know, we, we're promoted to glory. You know, we, we try to fool ourselves into thinking that death really isn't that big of a deal. That it doesn't really mess things up. As is reflected in an often quoted snippet from a, an early 20th century sermon. Death is nothing at all. It does not count. I've only slipped away into the next room. And we say these things to comfort ourselves. Because for some of us, the finality, the the harsh reality, it's simply too much to bear. It's too much to look in the face of. But it is a fact that we can't escape. Death is an enemy. Now, it's a defeated enemy for those who are in Christ But it is not the way it's supposed to be. It's not normal. It's not normal. It is a detour from God's good design for creation. It's a direct result of human rebellion in the beginning. Romans uh, 5 tells us that just as sin came into the world through one man, Adam, and death through sin so death spread to all men because all sinned. Humanity has thrown off God's rule. We've set ourselves against God and his throne. And the result of that is judgment. God has given his good, beautiful creation over to decay and what Paul calls futility in Romans 8. Which is the same word, when translated in Greek, as we see in Ecclesiastes over and over, vanity, vapor. To put it simply, human sin has messed things up. And the chief expression of this crooked plight is death. And so we fear it, we hate it, we deny it, we do everything we can to try and avoid it. But as we come to Ecclesiastes 7 this morning, we discover death is not just an enemy It's also an instructor, a teacher. And it offers several important lessons for us as we live out our days in a world that doesn't work the way it should. More specifically, we find in this passage that an awareness of our impending death helps us live out our days with sober-mindedness and with a patient hope in the God who raises the dead. So let's pray and seek God's guidance this morning. Jesus, we recognize the, um, the sharp edge that your word sometimes has. And Lord, many people have been cut by it this week. And so we pray for your comfort, for your grace, for your peace. As we look at this, and may we have your eyes to see what it is you want us to see, to learn the lessons you want us to learn, and may we be strengthened by your spirit to walk in faith with you. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, it has been a few weeks since we've been in the book of Ecclesiastes. Um, We had a, a little break where Pastor Daggett took us through a series on the Trinity, um, but we're back this morning and we'll be here through just before Thanksgiving looking at what's possibly the longest sermon series title in history, Shy of the Puritans. Uh, work, wealth, pleasure, knowledge and other dreams that disappoint the surprising hope of Ecclesiastes. And I think it has surprised us so far as we look through the first half of the book, um, walking with the preacher who is probably the ancient King Solomon in his exploration of what he calls life under the sun. Life as you and I see and experience it day in and day out on this earth. And for most of his study and exploration, he's really set aside the question of God. What difference does God make in all this? We've seen that break through the clouds at times where we've seen God's perspective on something, but... For most of it, he set it aside and he's been after the whole purpose of his exploration was to test whether or not someone could find lasting gain and significance in anything that we do or see or achieve right here, right now, this side of the grave in life under the sun. He looked at money, he looked at work, at Relationships, pleasure, wisdom and knowledge, justice, religion. And if you've been with us so far, you know that his answer on each point has been a rather depressing no. You cannot find lasting gain in what you can do and achieve right here and right now under the sun apart from God. Life is vapor. As he says over and over in the book, vanity of vanities, vapor of vapors, it's smoke, it disappears before you can get a hold of it. It doesn't last, it doesn't make sense, and it doesn't amount to much in the end. That's been his discovery. And we saw the conclusion of that research a few weeks back at the end of chapter 6, verses 10 through 12, where He realized that since left to ourselves, there is no lasting gain to be found on earth apart from God. We have no choice, therefore, but to reckon with God. He wrote in in chapter 6, verse 10, Whatever has come to be has already been named. And it's known what man is and that he's not able to dispute with the one stronger than he. The more words, the more vanity. And what is the advantage to man? Man. For who knows what is good for man while he lives the few days of his vain life which he passes like a shadow? For who can tell man what will be after him under the sun? In other words, the preacher concludes that there is a sovereign and powerful God who's at work amid the vanity to bring about his plan, a God who's already named everything, and yet... We humans are unable to fully comprehend all that he's doing, and therefore we're unable to rightfully dispute with what he's doing. We can't see enough of the big picture to sort it all out from our vantage. So where do we go from here? What what, what do we do with that recognition? You know, we recognize God's in control. That's good. Uh, And we're not. That's true but hard, and that we're not even able to understand all that he's doing. So what exactly then does it look like to navigate the vapor that is our life, uh, this life under the sun in a fallen world where so much of our human effort really is fleeting and fruitless, a vapor of vapors? Well, that question, where do we go from here? is the very question that Solomon is going to spend the next six chapters beginning to answer for us. Uh, In these chapters, 7 through 12, uh, which will take us again up to Thanksgiving, Solomon is offering us wisdom for living in a world marked by things that don't last and don't add up. A world where our efforts and our skill sometimes do go unrecognized. Where our relationships turn on us and bite us. Where our safety nets that we trusted in fail. And our dreams are stillborn. And where every life is ultimately cut down by death. How do we live? That's where he's going. Wisdom for living as God's people in a fallen world. Now, what he's going to offer is a limited wisdom. It's a limited wisdom. We've already seen wisdom can't save us from the grave. Um, the preacher recognizes throughout these chapters that none of us can, quote, find out all that we're trying to make sense of. That's a phrase he repeats several times. You cannot find it out. You cannot find it out. So it's a limited wisdom. He's not going to give us all the answers we want. But just because it's limited doesn't mean it's useless. We do find some direction, some very good direction for how to live. And so whereas in in chapter 6, verse 12, the preacher acknowledges that No human left to himself can figure out fully what is good to do in a fallen world. Our very next verse through chapter 13 goes on to offer nine things that are in fact good. uh, Often translated better in our passage. Um, Though several of these good things to do may surprise us a bit. Now things start off innocently enough in in verse 1 of chapter 7. First half of that verse: A good name is better than precious ointment. By name here, the preacher is talking about our reputation, uh, how others think of you in terms of your character and your conduct. A good reputation is better than good perfume or a, or a fine precious ointment, which in the ancient world was generally pretty expensive. You know, we've seen. Him addressed this already in the book, how it's easy for us to look for our significance in and our value in our possessions, in our stuff, in our money. But when getting more money means sacrificing our character and our integrity and our reputation, well, Solomon is pointing out what really should be obvious, which one is ultimately more valuable in the end, stuff or reputation. But then he takes a random turn in the second half of the verse. And the rest of the chapter doesn't quite recover from here. And the day of death is better than the day of birth. And that one doesn't make sense. Yesterday, um, our family went up to Beverly to meet Annika June Morris, Tom and Emily's new baby. Beautiful baby, not uh, 19 pounds or anything, A beautiful baby. She was born by C-section on Friday, and uh, just a sweet little doll. That's a pretty special, joyous occasion, the day of birth. A lot happier. Most of us, I think, if we took a random poll, would far rather rejoice in the day of birth than go to a funeral. But here he says the day of death is better than the day of birth. What's he mean? Now, for those of us in Christ... We recognize that the day of death is in fact better than the day of birth insofar as it means we enter into God's presence forever. We think of Paul's words in Philippians, for to me, to live is Christ and to die is gain. But that's not what Solomon's talking about here. He's talking about life under the sun, life before we go into that presence. And so we have to ask, in what way? Is the day of death better than the day of birth? And he answers that in verse 2. It is better to go to the house of mourning than to go to the house of feasting, for this is the end of all mankind, and the living will lay it to heart. In other words, better to spend time in a funeral parlor than a birthday party or a wedding celebration. Why? Because the lessons you learn in a funeral parlor teach us far more about life. What really matters. And life as God's people in a fallen world. As he says at the end of the verse, For this is the end of all mankind. And the living will lay it to heart. Unless the Lord returns first, we all face death. No one escapes it. So what difference then does it make knowing that one day you will die? What do we gain from that knowledge? How does that affect the way that we live? We sometimes ask the rhetorical or theoretical question, if you knew you only had one day left, how would you spend that day? The way you answer that question shows you what you value most. It shows you what's really important to you. Though it seems strange, sorrow and death have much to teach us about what it really means to live. And to live as God's people in Christ. In this way, verse 3 says, sorrow is better than laughter. For by sadness of face, the heart is made glad. And if that's true, then verse 4, the heart of the wise is in the house of mourning. But the heart of fools is in the house of mirth or amusement. So what specifically then does death teach us? If if, if there's these lessons to be learned, what are they? And there are at least two lessons we learn in the funeral parlor uh, in this passage. Two principles that the preacher describes in light of death's reality that actually help us and guide us in knowing how to live, how to live out our days. First, death reminds us of the importance of being sober-minded, of taking life seriously. It's dreadfully easy to treat life like a joke. And all the more so today when the... That's precisely how our entertainment culture uh, that surrounds us treats life. It's just one big party, one big joke. But there is an appropriate seriousness to life. And death reminds us of that. Again, verse 4. The heart of the wise is in the house of mourning. The heart of the fool is in the house of entertainment. And so we read in verse 5. It's better for a man to hear the rebuke of the wise than to hear the song of fools. Uh, One author explains the point of that verse like this. If given a choice between hearing a wise man enumerate your faults and hearing the Spice Girls try to sing something, the choice is an easy one. Now, having a, a person sit down with you and point out what you're doing wrong and how you need to change is not a fun experience. If you've ever had that happen. But it is a good experience. And it helps you know how to live. It helps you focus on what matters in life. Walking with God. Loving our neighbors. Helping our children and our our friends come to know and to treasure Jesus. Now... Music and laughter are not the problem in this passage. Both of those things come from the hand of God. And we see a lot of joy and laughter elsewhere in this book. Music and laughter are not the problem. The problem is when amusement or entertainment supply the lenses through which we see and interpret the world. So when you get your news from John Stewart or your family values from the family guy, or your philosophy on, war, on, on life from Lady Gaga. And that's how you see the world through this world of amusement and entertainment. And, that, and so that's what sense you make of it is whatever pop culture tells us to make of it. That's the problem that he's addressing. It might be funny. It might make us happy. But it's not real. And it offers no help for making your way through a fallen world. If we glean our values from last night's sitcom, or if we walk through life with an iPod deafening our ears to the wisdom and warnings of friends and people who love us, from the wisdom and warnings of scripture, we are on the path of fools. We are on the path of fools. Verse 6 says, For as the crackling of thorns under a pot, so is the laughter of fools. This also is vanity. I don't know if you've ever tried burning thorns and seeing what happens. Um, they're good for kindling. They get a fire started, but they're really loud and noisy. They pop and they burn out like that. Uh, ever try cooking over them? You know, it's just not going to work. They're useless for that purpose. So amusement is useless for teaching us how to live. That's his point. Our hearts are are so easily given to foolishness and to corruption. Verse 7 tells us that surely oppression drives the wise into madness and a bribe corrupts the heart. Not even the wisest among us is immune from going off course. But death reminds us to be sober minded. To make the most of every opportunity, as Ephesians puts it, because the days are evil. There will come an end to life's journey, and there will be a judgment to follow. Are we taking Jesus seriously, placing our hope in him to rescue us from that judgment because of his life, death, and resurrection on the cross? Are we taking our mission as his people seriously? That God did not put us on earth and rescue us from sin to make the world revolve around us and our amusement. Rather, he saved us for a reason to make much of him and to help others make much of him by bearing witness to the life-changing gospel of Jesus and by helping people know what difference Jesus makes in every part of life. Are we taking our mission seriously? Pastor, friend of mine often uh puts it something like this. It's not a precise quote. Don't take yourself too seriously. But take the gospel seriously. So don't take yourself too seriously. It's okay to laugh. Make fun of yourself. Things like that. You're not everything you wish you were. Anyway, we all have our, our flaws and we all like to laugh at things. But take the gospel of Jesus seriously. First Peter 1 bids us Living with an awareness of our impending death helps us be serious about life and take the gospel seriously. The second lesson that we learn in the funeral parlor is the necessity of patience. The necessity of patience. Ecclesiastes 7, uh, 8 through 10. Better is the end of a thing than its beginning. And the patient in spirit is better than the proud in spirit. Be not quick in your spirit to become angry, for anger lodges in the bosom of fools. Say not, why were the former days better than these? For it is not from wisdom that you ask this. Now Patience is really hard when life doesn't work the way it's supposed to. Really hard. In fact, it can be downright infuriating when things don't go the way we planned, the way we prayed, the way we hoped. Whether it's something little like not being invited to your friend's birthday party or something utterly terrible like death. And when we're in that place where life has taken a detour that we did not want and did not ask for, it's easy for our hearts to wander back to the beginning, back before the wheels fell off, back to when life was simple and nothing wrong had yet happened, not so much for the glory days, but for the good days, before the diagnosis, before the layoff before the spouse walked out, before the funeral. These are honest longings. These are honest responses to life in a fallen world. But when that pain and that longing produce in us a constant and easily triggered anger, an anger at life, an anger at God, and anger at those who wronged us, or let us down, or who left us. and anger at anything that reminds us that life is out of control. When we get to the place where we protest, God, how can you treat me this way? Why were the former days better than these? When that anger and pride take up residence in our hearts, we begin to wander from wisdom. And we follow a course through life that will not provide the answers we're looking for. Now, it's not wrong to get angry. It's not wrong to tell God you're angry. Especially when that anger is roused by the injustice and evil that surrounds us. What's wrong And downright dangerous is when anger becomes a permanent resident in our hearts. When it lodges in our bosom, as the preacher puts it. It becomes our first and our normal reaction to life's problems. The preacher tells us this is foolish. Not only does it destroy relationships and spoil life... Not only does it reflect a lack of trust in God, but the simple fact is that our anger can do nothing to address our situation. It can do nothing to make things right. Only God can make things right. Only God can deal decisively with the wrongs and the evils in this world and in our lives. And so instead of anger, we need patience. We need patience. In Christ, the end of a thing is better than the beginning. And wanting to go back to the beginning, you know, wishing that none of this had ever happened and, and that this was just a, a bad dream and we wake up and life life is the way that it used to be. And it's kind of like saying, I want to go back and live in a world where the fall never happened. Before sin entered the garden, and, and, and I want to live as though none of this nightmare were true. And that really is a longing in every heart. That's an honest and proper longing in every heart. But the fact of the matter is we do live in a fallen world. The nightmare is real, and death is our constant reminder of that. And so, the only way back to the garden is forward through the cross and the resurrection. The only way that all the sin and the sadness that derails our plans and destroys our lives can be undone was for Jesus to step into the story, to take it all On himself in our place. And through it to bring life. Death entered the world because of sin. So if you don't deal with death, excuse me, if you don't deal with sin, you cannot deal with death. Death entered the world because of sin. So sin has to be dealt with. Its penalty was eternal death. And so... On the cross, that's what Jesus did. He dealt with it. He took our sin, our rebellion, on Himself. The full weight of God's anger against our rebellion. The full, ugly terror of hell. On Himself, on the cross. To deal decisively with it. To exhaust God's wrath. And to disarm sin's power. By willingly inviting its worst weapon on him. By laying his life down for us, Jesus disarmed sin and then he destroyed death's power through his resurrection on the third day. Death is an enemy, but it is a gloriously conquered enemy. And for those who trust in Christ, we taste that victory in the very moment that we taste death. As our souls enter God's presence in heaven. And when Christ returns in the end, he will destroy death itself forever. And usher in the resurrection and the new creation we've all been waiting for. In that day. When the Lord returns, our mortal bodies, our bodies prone to death, will be raised immortally. They'll be raised in the likeness of Jesus, never to perish again. In that day, in the new creation, as Revelation 21 describes, God himself will be with them, with us, as our God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Listen to that. Death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning or crying or pain anymore. For the former things have passed away. When we stare honestly into the grave and we see ourselves at the bottom, we realize how necessary it is to wait patiently on the God who raises the dead. That is the end we must long for. That is the only end that gives hope to the sadness of our hearts. The sadness of the present. I mean, it's tempting, I think, for everyone to just kind of want to avoid the gory details, not bring the subject up. You know, not speak of death or worry about sin. It's just depressing and sounds morbid. Um, But listen to what scholar Michael Horton has to say about this. We aren't morbid when we take sin, suffering, and death seriously as Christians. Rather, we can face these tough realities head on because we know that they have been decisively confronted by our Captain. They have not lost their power to harm, but they have lost their power to destroy. This is not morbid because it doesn't end at the cross, but it also doesn't avoid it. It goes through the cross to the resurrection. This is why the Christian gospel alone is capable of refuting both denial and despair. The hope of the gospel gives us the freedom to expose the wound of our human condition because it provides the cure. The hope of the gospel gives us freedom to expose the wound of the human condition because it provides the cure. Only in the cure of the gospel do we have wisdom and hope for living out our days in a fallen world with sober-mindedness and patient hope In the God who raises the dead. And so we see that, yes, there is some benefit to wisdom under the sun. There is some direction it provides. As the preacher affirms in verses 11 through 12, Wisdom is good with an inheritance, an advantage to those who see the sun. For the protection of wisdom is like the protection of money. And the advantage of knowledge is that wisdom preserves the life of him who has it. Now, of course, neither wisdom nor money can protect us from everything. Uh, But in the same way that a savings account can provide some protection in the day that the company goes under, so wisdom offers guidance and protection for us to make our way through this fallen world with sober-mindedness, seriousness, and with a patient hope in God. Wisdom cannot deliver us from death. Solomon says in verse 13, Consider the work of God. Who can make straight what he has made crooked? No amount of human wisdom or human righteousness can undo the effects of the fall. God's judgment on sin. We, we cannot unwind the clock when life falls apart. We cannot stop the train that ends in the grave. But we can hope in Christ. Praise God, we can hope in Christ who rescues us from the grave and who promises to bring out of this broken creation a new world beyond our imagination. When our hope in the face of death is fully vested in the life, death, and resurrection of Christ, we can face this mess This fallen world with confidence that things will end well. And that no matter how difficult it gets, we will never be alone. We will never be alone. We can spend our days wisely, making the most of every opportunity for Jesus. Trusting that God is at work to bring his purposes to completion and that he's with us by his spirit. That we can trust him, rest in his strength, serve him joyfully with whatever days God gives us. And afterwards, see him in glory. Let's pray. Jesus, we pray that you would overwhelm our hearts with this hope. That we would find hope in Christ, not just for the climactic events of life. The funerals, the divorces, the illness and injury. But that we would see how your hope in the cross trickles down to every corner. Fills every nook and cranny of our human existence. Gives meaning and joy and significance to all of life under the sun. May Christ be our hope. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.